Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1052 with Tim Niver. Ownership only comes when you own something fully, you know, and, and, you, and you can't necessarily have the same sensation until you own something and you're fully responsible for it. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. The Predictive Index, or PI, is a talent optimization platform that helps build happier and more productive teams. With the PI software, you will lower employee turnover, train your managers to be leaders, and keep your employees engaged. You can try PI for free and receive a 30-minute consultation from a certified PI partner, Ed Doherty, from One Degree Coaching. Head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp if you're tired of the other tater you ought to try tater cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve tater cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors all the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package from the freezer to the fryer to the guest serve them in a variety of different ways and in different applications great for dining delivery and to go with all the uncertainties of the world today we should be able to be certain that our food always has great flavor and Tater Kegs provides that comfort in every bite. Request samples at taterkegs.com. That's T-A-T-E-R-K-E-G-S.com, taterkegs.com. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest owner at St. Dinette, Moochie's Italian, Moochie's Frozen Food, as well as host of Niver Niverland podcast, Tim Niver. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I sure am. Appreciate I, it. I am psyched to have you here. Uh, so my, my approach to finding guests nowadays is just talking to the city, other restaurateurs, looking for patterns. Who should I talk to? Your name keeps coming 
up, my friend, which mm. tells me I am sitting in the right place. And I cannot wait to dive in to find out who you are, how you got you to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Don't stop the money. Don't stop the money. What does that mean to you? Uh, I just don't keep doing things that keep it creative, keep it moving, uh, keep the ideas fresh so that the those creativity uh, outputs are uh, actually reaching the goal of making a little bit of money. Don't right. stop the money, you know, and just so you have to keep a message out there that, you know, this is, you know, for me, a business as well as my life's passion. But, you know, um, it's always a hustle. So that's really where it starts and ends. I don't know if I imagine this and maybe you can support this or disagree with it. Um, is there like an undertone message within our industry, especially within like the more creative independence that money is a bad thing? Yeah. Oh, I don't think that necessarily uh, it's a good look to be a rich restaurant owner in the eyes of many. Why is that? Well, I think I think when it comes to food and beverage, um, some of the basic things in life, people feel as though they can get taken advantage of easily and say something's overpriced. Um, I think the industry as a whole has a, a very quick, um, let's say, response time from all guests in any way, whether they eat in your restaurant or not. You know, like, oh, yeah, I don't. I don't eat those at those places or, you know, they get a bad review and it's like, okay, you know, uh, I think there's just this kind of way that people react to restaurants. And I don't think it's, you know, like you, uh, you know, like it's like almost like you're an insurance agent. You don't want your insurance agent rolling around in his Bentley. Right, because yeah. it's like, well, <laughs> damn, you know, insurance is good. Is that, am I paying my insurance? So I got the maxima. <laughs> I got the ma- the Nissan Maxima because that's a moderate choice. It's still pretty fast, you know. Like, but I think those are things that do exist to some extent. Well, I mean, I think there's this message, and I'll be honest when I when I first started this podcast, I, I believe I was naive, uh, and I still believe I have a lot to learn. But I do have a different relationship with money. I think that we need to be fiscally responsible as restaurant owners. Um, not because we want to roll around in Bentleys, but because we need amazing people and amazing people need security and cash flow provides security. Uh, so like what, what goes through your mind as I'm saying that? Well, just percentages. Yeah. I mean, what do you think you're going to make? What do you think? What? Yeah. What do you think you're going to make? What are you going to make? 15% net, you know, you're going to make 20% net and it's possible. Well, it's possible. It's not easy. Right. Right. Yeah. But you know, um, Writing the pro forma and then executing on it are very different things. Right. Expecting what you're uh, thinking is going to happen, you know, last few years really kind of rocked the boat, right? You know, and it's, right. I don't know, like in our city, I, we, I, we've not found equilibrium. What do you mean by that? Well, I feel since like since COVID's like over, right? We all know that it's like happening still, but basically it's over, right? So everything could be back to normal. George Floyd's murder, I mean, just shocked the city. And it was so deep and so hard. And people are like, you know, you got to say something. And other people are like, as a business, you just stay neutral. Uh, You know, shit's burning. You know, and it changed you know, the way a lot of people feel secure in the city. Mm. Uh, that with the, you know, the two years of not being sociable, say, you know. And then this this particular, 
this particular neighborhood just flipped from people who are retiring to their condo to young people who are are working in an inflated economy and trying to get through. The people that live here now can't come in like the people when we were down here opening eight years ago. Right, right. It does not happen. And it so it just flips. So I'm just, you know, there's in this city and in Minneapolis as well, I feel like we are not back yet. And I don't think that's a negative necessarily. I think it's part of the fight to continue to evolve, right? right. You know, you, we took one to the jaw. Yeah. Like, that hurt. Well, when, when we get stability, is it going to be stable at a different point? You know, we still never looking? been stable anyway, man. Right, right. It's right. never, you know, this is always a risky business. Right. It's, you, you know, you can do it or you don't. Um, and, you know, the variables have just changed yeah. so dramatically. You, you, you have to, you know, even, even in the sense that people talk about um, restaurants, you go to a restaurant for the experience. You know, hey, bright lights, you know, look at all of this design, millions of dollars spent on these things. And that's, that adds to the experience. I know, I get it. It adds to the price. I know, I get it. It adds to the debt. I know, I get it. You know, um, it's, it's, just, it's just a lot involved in, yeah. in, you know, how you can manage that, the volume you have to do. Right. And you can't necessarily predict your volume. Danny Del Prado seems to be able to, time after time, create places that just bring people down. Guess what? He's really good. What do you mean by bring people down? He brings people to every restaurant in, he into, opens. Into the restaurant? Oh, okay. yeah. He brings people down to his restaurants. And he does it. He, he does it. Yeah. I had him on the show. He was a great interview. Um, you know, I, and I, I know I was hold. I want to hold what you're doing with Niver Niverland for the end because I feel like what you're doing with that podcast is trying to carry a narrative around where the industry is and where it needs to be. Or I don't know if your target market is the consumer or the restaurant owner in general. Like <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. I don't either. Um, but I, I know that you talk about a lot of what's happening, the state of our industry, mm-hmm. and what we need to do and what we need to communicate. We usually wrap up a conversation talking about what's the future look like and how we go into the future intentional. Yeah. And I'm chomping at the bit to get there, but I want to find out how you got to where you are today. Yeah, man. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Like, well, like I, when, take me back to the beginning. Oh, I, I lived I live with an Italian American ma. Her ma came over through Ellis Island, right? And I know that's way back, but it sets up 30s, the forties, eleventh, eleventh, just before the First World War. Awesome. Well, around that time, around that time. <laughs> Wait a minute, what are those? What are those dates? Anyway, um, and you know that just is kind of the type of household. Even by saying you know Italian mother, you know Italian American mother, that's the type of household that I was brought up. Okay, in. my father was in education, and we always had people over the house, and my mom would always cook. Okay, and um, that's where it started. But I really, fifteen years old when I worked at McDonald's. I think that's a great way to break into the industry. I think a lot of people, you know, kind of like turn their nose at the franchises and the, the corporations, but. As far as a, a first impression of what systems and process and order looks like, it's a great standard, you know. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? I I think they're profitable. I think they own so much property. I think it worked out just fine. And that you've seen their technology improve inside, right? But the thing that they do over and over again is give you that same burger, that same Big Mac, that same quarter pounder, the same damn way every time. Yeah, there's some lessons. Absolutely. 
I do want to paint the big picture. So um, today you own two restaurants. A frozen is 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 Mucci's Italian frozen. Is that like a your brand? Like a well, Mucci's frozen is. Uh, the child of Mucci's. It's okay. basically the same thing, right? It is the same thing. It, it comes on the same ethos. And it also just kind of uh, gives us an angle to put our brand out there. Lasagna travels well, freezes well, holds well. I ate frozen lasagnas. My mom would make four at a time. You don't make one. Right. You make, you make a batch. You, you make work. four at a time. They go in the freezer. Yep. You cook the fresh one right there. Right, and then you know, whenever the event happens, you bring a frozen lasagna out. That I lived with this all my life, and so that's so kind of the convenience I wanted to add in to. It's another relevant um, opportunity for a uh, revenue stream into Moochies yeah. to support it, to okay. make it healthy, to keep it healthy. But uh, honestly, it's also tough. It's like the second toughest thing I've ever done was, you know, retail, and I'm not necessarily good at it. It's not easy. I'm not yeah. good at it yet. And I'm trying really hard. You know, mostly it's maintaining inventory and, you know, some of the basic things about taking care of food the right way. The recipe's right. If you follow it, it will work. Right. So you have a dinette, which we're sitting today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Mucci's Italian. Yes. Which is the, 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 mother, the mother of... The mother of it, yeah. And, and do you have a storefront or are you working no. and getting your, your frozen goods into other stores? We're in probably 60 plus stores okay. currently. And, you know, um, we don't have a lot of SKUs, so we don't hold a lot of space. But right. it's, it's beautiful to walk into a place and see your product there, right? And then there's the podcast. And then there's the podcast. Are you monetizing the podcast too? No. Okay. So are there any other business elements, things that I'm, I should be aware of as far as the big picture of where you are no. today? Real quick, just to kind of help me understand your career. And I, this is what I have written down. Buffalo, you graduate. I mean, you go McDonald's, 15 years old. You go to school at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Yep. Uh, graduate in the, the mid-90s. Yep. You're in, um, you come to uh, Minneapolis, 1990s at the uh, Parasol Restaurant Group. Yeah. And then from there, you go to New York City, you're in Nevada, you're in Colorado, and you're back in Minneapolis. Colorado is more at the beginning of the okay. story, uh, right after I came back, uh, when it, right when I came back from Spain, I lived in Spain for a while, I graduated at uh, IUP, uh, and then I went out to Colorado. Got it. And worked for the Hyatt out there for a while. Got it. So, did you know when you were working for McDonald's, this is what you wanted to do? No. When did you figure that out? Um, it's what I did. Until I went to Spain, actually. Okay. And... What was the purpose of that trip? I, it was the last semester of university for me. I um, had a little... I, I went over there and, and spent 10, 10 and a half months. It was 1992, so I was, I was there for the World's Fair. Oh, nice. And I was also there for the Olympics. I saw the Dream Team play. That's beautiful. But in, in the big picture was... I was a young kid and I got to see the world and I got to see the passion of, you know, like different things eating, you know, conserva because it's been around forever. Right. Uh, ancient techniques basically. And, and so that's kind of the basic baguette, you know, simplicity with which you start to understand real food. I believe that's the, the root of it all. Yeah. So that was your inspiration. Like that, that absolutely. And that and the design aspects that I was missing, um, from, you know, where I had lived. Um, and I think there's maturity that allowed me to, to, to understand the, 
uh, bond between you know design and food and just environments in general. What'd you go to school for? Um, I was a marketing okay. uh, major, and then I had to take calculus and statistics, so I switched <laughs> it over to a business minor, and uh, it's a liberal arts degree, but I focused on Spanish. So when you come back to the States after your time in Spain, are you thinking to yourself that I want to make a career in hospitality? Is that the, was that the mindset? No, it was more, it was more, um, more like just a, a dream. Like the the idea that I I could and I came up with the tapas restaurant, um, kind of unheard of in the early nineties, right. and it's an all stand up bar, you know, um, old school. But um, I think I think really what happened was just, you know I, I came back and I was substitute teaching Spanish classes in New York. You don't have to this again back then you didn't have to have a license to be a substitute and so i would go into spanish classes and speak spanish and do a slideshow or whatever and then my buddies invited me out to colorado and i went out there and i got a job at the hyatt regency and i worked for a guy named graziano buzzi okay and graziano was the guy who who he was the maitre d he was the face of the place he was in the back telling them he was expediting you know give me this table now give me this table now fire that risotto guys you know in his accent you know, and uh, and then you go out on the floor and schmooze Kathy Lee Gifford and, you know, it's, you know, like whatever. And then you go back up to the door like this man really kind of gave me and some of the people I worked with were like key in inspir- inspiring me to open places. So what was it that, about that that encounter or watching him in his encounters with other people that what was inspiring about that? The Riz his just his complete charisma. Mm. Uh, you know, and it's not as it's not as though he was like always cool under fire either. Um, it was kind of that you know you could even see the edge of his care, and it was a little sharp. You know, he cared so much that it was you know like, uh, but but also it came with stature, and he balanced that pretty well. Mm. Um, but there was a fire in there, you know, um, that that inspired me. So by 2000, sorry, uh, yeah, 2006, you own your own place, right? Yeah. At what point are you like, I'm going to start living intentionally to open my own place? Was it during your time working with a parasol restaurant group? Yeah, I think, I think that's where I made this, that's where I made the switch to management. Okay. Um, why'd you make that switch? Um, well, I was moving here to be with my then fiance, who's still my wife. Uh, so many years later. Um, anyway, and so I was making a new life here, and I went to the best restaurant I could find, and I said, I walked in for an interview, and I said, I'll be your best waiter in two months. And they're like, what? <laughs> we don't even know you. I'm like, I'll be your best waiter in two months. You know, I'm like fresh off the heels of being in Colorado or whatever, or that like, like that has some cachet. So um, I worked there for two weeks, and then they said, hey, why don't you become an assistant manager? And that's when I made the decision to get into management and from there Parasoli's guidance and across their concepts allowed me to understand like the bigger picture and how to make bigger money and to kind of have the big concepts, you know, growing in my mind. And it was a time when they were building restaurants with 300 seats. Okay. So at this point, it's like, if we're looking at your career, would you say this is probably a pivotal point for you as far as your evolution as a professional? Um, it was an early pivotal point. Yeah. 
how did you transform during this time? Who was the man you went into that restaurant as, and the man you came out as that that restaurant group? As? Oh, I, I went in as a I went in as a cocky server. I'll be your best server in two weeks. Yeah, and I I came out feeling like I ran one of the best restaurants in the city at a very young age. How long and, were you there? Um, that was twenty five or so, then uh, twenty six. And then we moved, my wife and I moved to New York City after that. How, so 25 to 26 or you were 25? So well, I worked, I guess it was 95 to 97 that I was there. Okay, and, so two years. Yeah, right. And and so after that, I, I had an opportunity with them to work with the Buku de Beppo, which okay. <laughs> went really big. But I I thought I should try New York. Like if, you know, this... Everything was like a real burgeoning restaurant scene now, right? It was like things were really starting to take uh, aim. And I don't know what year the Food Network started, but, it, you know, that's when things yeah. started really, really rumble in this industry, Emerald. Yeah. And, and so things were really going coming together, and New York was on fire. Great yeah. chefs were hot, and it was cool, and Zagat, and, you know, everything was rolling. There was a period where that was, the I think, the best thing you could possibly do. If you wanted to be the best in the industry or the best in your community, you have to go to that competitive market on New York or Los Angeles and surround yourself with the best, right? And then you get – those are competitive markets. You can't, it, it takes chops <laughs> to make it in those markets. So if you can go learn how to operate at that highest possible level in those markets and then bring that skill set back to your hometown, like – Good luck competing with me. Yeah, you know? plant that, plant that. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you. Gotta, I felt like certainly at that time, you know, that I was walking into New York with really good experience, right. and I got shut down on so many jobs, and I had I had some bad suits, you know, comparatively. Yeah, and so you know, like, so I was a kid again there, right? Yeah. And I think what I learned there was chops. Okay, before you left uh, personally, what like, were you thinking I can't get what I need to be a successful restaurant? Was that the goal to open your own place? Were you still thinking your own tapas? I was, I was thinking about my own tapas, the place, like, the whole time. Okay. But I, I knew there were still experiences that I needed. What did you feel like you were missing that you weren't getting in Minneapolis at the time? Well, I, th- I think it was more about my life saying to me, hey, honey, you want to take a chance and go to New York and we'll work it out. You know, we can work anywhere. Mm. And so we were still, I think, just trying to keep adventure around for ourselves. Okay. How did the, the experience at Parasoli like really like transform you though, in terms of like you went in as a cocky server, right? I asked that question earlier. Yeah. Um, what were the biggest humbling moments for you during that time? Well, you know, I think interpersonally dealing with employees and finding out, you know, how that needs to work from a motivation level, um, from a sincerity level, from a compassion level. I learned a lot. I became, as I became a better manager, I learned a lot about that side. It's not just executing service, but, you know, the people who execute the service. Did you have a bad experience that was kind of a life? A life no, lesson? no, not necessarily. I would say that it's just accumulated small mistakes. You know, like, you know, you get told not to do that again and you don't do it again. Got it. You know, and it's nice being able to be told, you know, tell somebody once, hey, you know, we're going to need you to do it this way. And and then it's a forever learned item. And that was, I think, you know, that was certainly a big, a big lesson. Transformationally, you know, I got, I got married, you know, like, and, and I was still, cli- I knew I was still climbing the ladder. 
yeah. but I was not afraid to reach for the next rung, you know? Yeah. And like, so I, I, I was climbing still. Now, were you a dad at this point or did that no. have to come? Okay. No, no. And I know that changes things. That's, and that's part of the reason yeah. we, we knew we wanted to have kids. And so we were on an adventure and we knew that we could replant our, you know, roots in any city where there were restaurants and, um, that's what we did. We went. So you go for it. You're in New York City. Yeah. You got your somewhat nice, in your perspective, suit on, but not to New York standards yeah. level. Uh, you, you find yourself at Smith and Walensky. Yeah. What, it was the New York restaurant group. Okay. Uh, Alan Stillman, who started TGI Fridays, owned oh, okay. that group. Wow. I know it's crazy. He'd show up Talk in his limo it. with his lackey, and his lackey's like taking notes on everything. <laughs> it was really funny, but it was also like this dude's like big. Big time, you know? Yeah, and that's a, another really well-run organization. Yeah, you know, and so they, I worked at a place called Cite, which is a wine dinner every night. C-I-T-E with the little accent on it. But anyway, it was a wine dinner every night, and there was wine bottles on ice every night. And you can come in and get the three-course, and you basically would pour them some wine and leave a bottle on the table, and they helped themselves for okay. one price. Oh, wow. And then I went to Maloney and Porcelli, which is within that group. Um and then I went, then there was a fire there one night. And because of the fire, um, they're like, hey, Niver, go over to Smith & Walensky. They were just rolling that out. Okay. Um, and so I went over to Smith & Walensky and I worked the door at Smith & Walensky. And that was... What an, was different about this experience versus your previous experiences? The amount of strength that you have to convey to people that you're dealing with. Mm the directness of the of the guest you're in new york city right and i'm not saying rude because i don't really believe new yorkers are rude i think they are just no direct <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like hey i need to see for two yeah i'm like eh, you know it's gonna be uh, an hour and a half or whatever and he's like oh come on we brighten up any room you know and it's like yeah i know yeah yeah but we have a wait and he's like well all right just, uh, i'll just wait right here right and you know like there's like this kind of thing where you got to will your existence in New York City. Yeah, the it, people with the b- biggest will tend to go further. Well, and it was a steakhouse. Yeah, you know, so you got to have a verve. Mm. Well, you know, we brighten up any room. It's like, okay, well, go brighten up the bar for two hours. <laughs> Not my quote. That's a good one. Though. You know, I know yeah. <laughs> I heard some of the singers, man. Didn't you? Uh, and then, and then, make uh, Muhammad Ali wait for a little bit once or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not very long. <laughs> um, but I love that for just the real quick. Like, I love this mentality that your experience is no more important than any other guest experience, and that's I think where we need to draw the line as hospitalitarians is like. Look, you you can't come in here and ruin the experience for either a another guest. Or my employees at the at the expense of your own experience. Get the fuck out of here, you know. Like and having that line and and, and owning yeah. that line. Yeah, and I think we could be better as an this, industry. Well, this is, yeah, you know, and this is how it is. Yeah, this is how it is. Yeah, and and that's honest and straightforward. Yeah, and I, you know, you don't have to love it all, but, but this this is how candid. it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, okay. Um, there was with that that same restaurant group. There was uh, Maitre D of Sate. Okay. And, and he was affectionately known of uh, known as Sneezy. Um, and, you know, this is back when you had everything written on a clipboard and you were recopying the clipboard and kind of doing the, you know, pencil Tetris with the reservations and stuff. So when people walk in the door, Sneezy would greet them and he'd give them a little bow and he'd put the clipboard behind him and, you know, like say good evening. And they'd be like, oh, you know, like in a rush or whatever. And they're like, oh, uh, we're t- two... 
two for Smith, and he'd be like, oh, my God. And he'd, like, rip through the papers. <laughs> like, he was all of a sudden, like, you know, just mimicking their energy. And he's like, okay, we got you guys. We got you guys. All right. Can I get you a glass of wine before you sit down? So he busted their balls and then offered him a glass of wine that they knew they were going to get anyway. Yeah. You know, just it's okay, you know, to kind of have that jokiness mm. with folks. And it doesn't, you know, people don't always, like, I, I would never say to servers, say what I say in my restaurants. Don't say what I say. Say what you say. Don't say what I say. Because I can be a little direct. I could be a little dirty. I could be a little flirty. It I can, you works know. works for you. Yeah, it's my joint. Yeah. It's my joint. Yeah. So, you know, often people that I serve don't know I, I'm <laughs> owner. And it creates a, an interesting layer. That is interesting. So how long were you in New York City? About a year and a half. Okay. And um, then I, I, I went to... I, befriended a chef named Sam DeMarco. In New York City? Yeah, he had a place called First. Um, okay. First and First. And it was just kind of dark and spacey, kind of in a modern galactic way, you know? Like, you know, uh, a little bit of stainless steel, and they had, like, uh, those, like, hose clamps as uh, napkin rings, yeah, you know? And just things that I remember and then use later in another restaurant. But anyway, I befriended Sam DeMarco, and and while I was working in Smith Walensky, I'd go down and eat there, and it was just so good. And one night I'm in there, and uh, Sammy comes out, and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I got stuff going on." He's like, you know, very short guy, you know, he's from the Brooklyn, right? You know, um, and uh, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. So he goes back in the kitchen, brings out another course. He goes, "Steve Wynn's here." I'm like, "What? Steve Wynn?" I'm like, "Who's fucking Steve Wynn?" He goes, "He owns." like all of the casinos in Las Vegas, like all of them. I'm like, wow. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why, why is he here? And he's like, well, I don't know, you know. So then a, um, a couple of weeks later, Sammy got picked up by Steve Wynn to open up the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Okay. And again, the winds of adventure picked my wife and I up and flew us out west. Okay. So were you on, were you piggybacking on Sandy bring you with him? Or yeah. You, okay. Yeah. I ended up working. He hired me as the general manager of a place called Sam's American and we were in the Bellagio. Um, God, that was 90, late 98, 80, 98. 98. 98. So were you ready to, to leave New York? Were you done with New York? Do you think you got what you needed from New York? Was there a challenge for you being in New York? We love it. My wife would have never left. Um, it may be as sim- simple as we were still wandering and we had gotten maybe enough in the moment. Um, we didn't see each other a lot. I was working literal. People say they work 80-hour weeks. I believe a very few of them. I was working 70 to 80-hour weeks because yeah. they, they paid management by shift if you okay. if you did a uh, day a lunch and a dinner you know you could you know if you did that three days a week you could almost be off a couple other days so before so. we moved to the bellagio like what was your transformative like experience here how did you go into new york how did you come out of new york mm-hmm. a little more edgy it sounds like a little bit more experience speaking with the guests and being firm is what i'm hearing absolutely i think there is a level of refinement with that edge though too you know um, you know, figuring out the being quick, being quick, uh, verbally quick, funny, um, kind of uh, agile. 
Is that something you can learn, or is that just something that you? Oh think? yeah. Okay. How do you learn that? Well, I think it does. I think people have that rooted in them naturally, but it's all about what you're listening to, what makes you laugh, what your verb is, and then picking up little things right. repetition from from everybody yeah. else. You know, oh, that's a good way to say that. I love figuring out the way to say things. Mm. I love, love, love it. You kind of remind me of a comedian right now, you know, and like we're very much on stage like comedians and like they, they don't come out of the gates with like their new material and crush it. They try it over and over and over again and they figure it out. Yeah. And I feel like that there's something similar to how you present yourself in the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. The Smith Walensky opened a restaurant in Chicago. It was part of their rollout and Vegas was next. Got it. And they sent me to Chicago for a month because they wanted me to infuse the idea of what it's like to be in New York and how you say things to people in Chicago being a similar town there's kind of a at that time a masculinity about mm-hmm. it you know like a more again it's a steakhouse like hey how you doing you know I can I can just throw a little New York on the end of my New York I'm from New York you know just the how you doing great come over here you know like and just give people a sense it's not it's not like I talked in a new york accent a lot i'm just saying you know that feeling that energy confidence that yeah 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 confidence that's, that's maybe uh, maybe overconfidence yeah like we're in the right place these guys know that we're lucky yeah, to be we got here. you we got yeah. you come on in yeah oh god guys yeah it's really good to see you again so this is so you're getting kind of groomed for this experience absolutely be great i was hunting and gathering absolutely yeah um before we kind of move on i just want to get a, a, a sense i mean how long were you in nevada for about a year and a half. A year and a half. Um, I mean, that's a good period. I think that there's a, a theme coming up, that you're in mostly space. I think a year is the minimum. If somebody's going to put time and energy into training yeah. you, a year is the minimum. Two years is now you actually can like pick up things and things become almost habit, right? Yeah. And was that intentional or did that just happen the way? I mean, it sounds like this is just kind of how the universe unfolded. It is how the universe unfolded. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, again, you know, I praise my wife for she's got bigger balls than I do because we've been doing this forever. And she supported me in every way to to get get to this point. And and every day forward, she's there for me in this, despite how, you oh, know, what was she challenging. Um, she's she's been running the restaurants with me for the okay. last number of years. It was convenient for my family. Yeah. But she was the one that took care of the kids and got them out to school and this and that and was home with them, you know, most of the nights while I was off working. And um, um, our kids are now grown mostly. And, she, you know, she likes the industry a lot, but she really wanted to do something for herself that wasn't, you know, she didn't need to be supportive of the kids. They weren't, in a way, they weren't babies anymore. They you got know? the support. So now she's um, studying to be a paralegal and, and is working left the restaurant a couple of months ago uh, the restaurant world a couple of months ago and now she's working in a law office downtown as a legal assistant while she's going to school and uh, I'm, I'm super proud of her I get to I get to do for her now what she's done for me all of these years I feel like that's going to come in handy though it's amazing <laughs> having someone go to legal I, stuff breadwinning <laughs> she's keep going girl yeah. like I just love it I just love it for her you know, just the way that she inspired me to keep going and all that. So I know you, it. you open your first restaurant two years after you leave Nevada. Hmm. Or not two years, sorry. Six years after. You opened 2006 Talk Town Diner. Yeah. Or sorry, Town, 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 Town Talk Diner. Yeah. Uh, what, like, between your time in Nevada and going to open your first place, like, what, like, take us to the point where you think, like, what was the biggest impression on you? Like, what set you up for success? 
Well, my next job in between okay. Vegas and, and opening my own. Is there place. anything worth bringing to the service in terms of what happened in Vegas that kind of was like an aha moment for you, a point of evolution? <laughs> that, that there are no limits. Mm. That nothing is impossible. Mm. That it's all there. Is that a Everything mindset? is in Vegas. <laughs> so is that just like a mindset of like blow the roof off? Yeah, I'm going to win. Okay. What you know, it? you have to have a winner. You have to feel like you're going to win, you know, and you aren't, you know. Vegas is built on losers, friends. Yeah. It's, it's not built on winners, okay? <laughs> but there's a lot of people that go there, and it's yeah. fun to blow money. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, there's a spirit about people that go there. And that's why the max, max trip to Vegas should be three days. Get in, go hard, get out. Yeah, and that's how it feels. <laughs> yeah. Right? But, you know, the Bellagio is a $2 billion project. Jesus. At that time, that's crazy. you know, going back and, twenty and plus years ago, man. And so, this is this was a monumental worldwide opening. Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, Chris Noth, you know, like all the stars were there. Everybody was there. Is this where you told Colin me? Powell was freaking there? <laughs> you know, like I mean, this is you know, you don't get access like that. Ever, unless you're in a place like that, LA, New York, whatever. But people come to Vegas and it's so condensed. Yeah. You know? It's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, yeah. It's a weird spot. I've never been, but I'm hoping to go out in my next, when I get the RV, I'm trying to manifest that shit. Yeah. When I get the RV, yeah. I'm going to make my way you out. Get that RV. Yeah, man, it's going to happen. Um, is this where you told Muhammad Ali or asked him if he had a reservation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he took a fake swing at me too, like your name, you know? <laughs> And I was, you know, those are, those are things like that. And, and Drew Barrymore and Selma Hayek ate in the restaurant and George Lucas. And I just, you know, this is, you know, and Jean-Claude Van Damme forgot his code in the restaurant and I walked it up to his room for him, Mr. Van Damme. <laughs> Seriously. This is just, you know, like, and, you know, I was in Steve Wynn's office and there's a Picasso in there and I delivered his lunch from Sam's one day and... You know, there's like two layers of security and whatever to get into the inner sanctum there. And um, just just wild. Just, but, but again, just blow the roof off. There blow is. the roof off, man. That's what Vegas was. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to have this fountain in the middle of a desert. We're going to fill it with water every day. So you know, it's opulence. You're there for two years. You, yeah, in you, that range, a year and a half. Well, um, we got pregnant oh, okay. out there. We had so much fun. Yeah. And uh, we got pregnant out there. And it was like, eh, you know, I don't think we want to do this with children here. So we didn't want to raise our kid. You had in New York. You had Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. That's a good time. Four yeah, years. it was a good time. And, you know, uh, my partner has roots here. And um, I didn't necessarily want to go back out east. Um, and so we came here, you know, a moderate-sized city. You get a little bit, little bit of the snow and the, the weather, and you get a little bit of the city. And it and we just replanted here. Time to have a family. Time to have a family. So you come back. You, you don't open your restaurant right away. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's going through your mind? What's the strategy? Well, I needed a job. So um, some, some of my connections from Vegas helped hook me up uh, okay. with Marcus Samuelson. Okay. And at that time, he was the chef of restaurant Aquabeat. That name is familiar. Why would I know? Red him? Rooster. Okay. He's an yep. international star. Yeah. Dude's amazing. He was in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Okay. Opened up with uh, 
uh, partner Hoke and Swan at the time. They don't work together anymore. So you came on at Aquavit. Am I saying that correctly? Aquavit. Aquavit. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Uh, you notice I screw things up all the time. Hey, man, I got corrected <laughs> a lot by all the true Swedes that look down at Aquavit. You know, okay, okay. You know. Um, so uh, what was, I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure working with alongside that guy, there was some, like, what was, what was the evolution here? Well, this, this really was refinement. This was super fine dining, tasting menu, vegetarian and non-vegetarian every night, changed almost weekly. Um, it was the, the finest restaurant in Minneapolis for a number of years, the years that it existed. We were in the top, in Gourmet Magazine's top 50 in the United States uh, consecutive years while we were all there. And it, that was access to uh, the world with the understanding that I've learned a lot about refinement. I went to uh, Stockholm and did an event in the Opera House with Marcus. Um, He and myself and uh, the other, his partner, went to Barcelona and went up and ate at El Bouilly, Ferran Adria's restaurant. And so he gave me that, you know, I had been to Europe before and I, I understood it was there, but then I have my education, my college, my my, my work university. And then he gets, um, I get lucky enough that he, he takes me with him on a couple of these great trips. It was a great honor. And, um, uh, that was, I would say where I knew, um, what the top looked like. What did the top look like? What was different from, Oh, fine dining was possible, um, on any level and any size kitchen, um, that it's a mindset. Um, what is that mindset? Well, it's about plating really, you know, like you're just kind of reducing things down to a real specific point. It's like sharpening a pencil and, you know, you get to that refinement and your lines just get to be so straight and thin and tight. Um, and I, I think that's what I learned. That's really a mindset. It just depends how you want things to look ultimately because a pretty dish of pasta doesn't photo well, but it makes you feel great inside, you know, but a plate from, you know, it's a my and um, like a Peruvian sushi joint in Miami that has like perfectly handled perfectly sliced piece of fish a a, a perfectly reduced sauce a rice that tastes appropriately and that's that fine line that is fine dining to me and i think anybody could do it so at this point i mean not well but i think if you put your mind to it you can do it yeah i mean i don't think i could do it if i'm being honest but i think that's just because it doesn't match my character you Mm -hmm. know like that's that's part of it 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 takes a very specific person to Mm -hmm. be into fine dining i think it takes attention to detail it takes almost an ocd level of just care and i think you need to know what you're getting yourself into i'm saying is like you know you know when you've you've sharpened your pencil that far yeah but i i could only see the top from did that resonate with you that level like was that something that you loved? i loved it i loved it but i didn't know you know but my i think the the real root of my food dream still was doing tapas and that's was uh, that town talk diner for you no it ended up being town talk diner. For me. Okay, so w- w- take me to that point where you start saying, like, you start putting things in motion to do your own thing. I worked um, 
with Marcus for, for three years at Aquavit. And then I got recruited by the CEO of uh, Lifetime Fitness, Bram Akrati. Okay. And he had a restaurant called Martini Blue in the Grand Hotel, which was supposed to be a sexy, clubby Miami vibe. And so I went and helped uh, consult there for a year. And um, your lane is front of house, uh, general manager. Yeah, yeah but but I know how to, I I know what a menu should contain. I believe I know how to build an appropriate menu. Got it. Uh, um, uh, I can cook some stuff. If I don't know how to cook it, I've seen it being cooked. Right. Um, for a lot of years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some people will say you're a chef or whatever, but I don't really have the technical skills to do it. I but think I, when you're surrounded yourself with people like Marcus, you get that level of humil- humility where you might know how to cook, but like a chef is a different thing. I ab- think that absolutely. most people don't realize yeah, that. Yeah, my pencil's yeah. not that sharp yeah. in that in that arena, right? But, I, you know, it was just such... Um, inspiration to work with an entrepreneur like Brahm at Lifetime. But what I realized is uh, from him was um, kind of like shit or get off the pot. And, you know, he was a very, he wasn't a restaurateur. He was passionate about restaurants and passionate about food. Um, and he knew that I wanted more and he could see it in me. So he's like, okay, Tim, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's time for me to go. And he's like, I, I want to open up my own restaurant. I had looked at the space called Town Talk Diner around that time and had some partners that were owning the building and kind of doing the refurbishment of the space with, without anybody in it because it needed help. And um, I ended up making it work. I left Lifetime Fitness. And I went and served at a place called Axel's in Mendota Heights, this chain run by a couple of veterans and you know i wrote my name my name upside down on the table and i served for five or six months in the mornings i go to the town talk diner and you know plan and try to get the money together to finish the beginning of the projects money throw fell through then we got money you know we got saved um and we were able to open i mean it was a real struggle to get that first one like off the fucking ground now when we take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be back back to talk about that struggle what that was like how you overcame it and really dump out the lessons this episode made possible by owner.com owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30 percent commission fees look with Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit Owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. 
Most business problems are people problems, people not understanding each other, and the predictive index helps to increase that understanding between others. Hi, I'm Ed Doherty. I am the founder of One Degree Coaching here in Philadelphia. Predictive Index is a talent optimization platform, been around for over 55 years. It helps leaders to build happier, high performing teams. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. As somebody who's gone through the PI process, process, I can tell you that knowing who you are, knowing who your team is can help you be far more intentional than you've ever been with your business. If you want to learn more about PI and get to work with Ed, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. If you click the link, sign up for PI, you can create a provisional account. I will set up an opportunity to talk to you directly and read your results and give you a little tour of the platform. See if it works for you. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. We're back. So where you left off is this. You finally get your own place, the, the, the momentum going to open your own place, Town Talk Diner. Um, what was the struggle? Get, get, get into the money. The, just trying to just get organizing it, organizing a business, getting it set up appropriately. How did that feel? Like, take a Scary as hell. Like I, I had never done that part. Yeah. Ownership only comes when you own something fully, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you, and you can't necessarily have the same sensation. Until you own something and you're fully responsible for it. So there was fear. Oh, fear, fear, sure. Of what? Um, I think the fear was maybe of not being successful. That's a common fear, my friend. Yeah. Uh, And I've tried to shed, you know, some of those fears, but they still really, really exist. You know, I like to be liked, you know, and I wanted to be liked and I wanted to prove, you know, like anything you train for that I learned and that I was able to execute on those in my way. Yeah. Were you, I mean, in terms of giving up, getting the money, uh, did you have fear of giving up too much? Like, were you sharing equity? Oh, absolutely. Like, too much. Okay. And it, but, but you know, um, that's what it takes when you, when you have to put a deal together on a string, you know, like when you have to work it out, you know, last minute and get open last minute on a, you know, below zero January Minnesota night, you know, and there's this big town, you know, burned down in the unrest. Big town burned down? The the town tuck diner burned down in the unrest after George Floyd's murder. Oh, I did not know that. It was in that, in a building right down by that precinct. But this was back 2006, 2007. Yeah, but it's gone now. Now it's gone. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was such a such a great restaurant. Did you have partners? Partners, numerous. Four, right? Four-ish, yeah. yes. So I know a little bit about this story because I talked to Tommy uh, Bigno. Yeah. Uh, and he was uh, he was working as a cook or a sous yeah. chef? Or yeah, what? in both, actually. did okay. both there. And I know he came up under you. You gave him opportunity to go do his own thing with uh, Prairie. I don't know the full details of all that, but he said amazing things about his experience there. That that I I did a little consulting with him, and the Town Talk Diner really was just a spiritual place. It was it was at a time where people were were partying. It was at a time where people were understanding quality uh, food. Two thousand seven is a big year. It was really it was really awesome. I contributed solely to the iPhone coming out because all of a sudden mm. it's no longer you comparing yourself to the guy down the street or the gal down the street. It's like I'm comparing myself to Los Angeles, New York. You can see it all. The other part yeah. of the, the world. And like you're just the bar just started getting 
higher and rates. higher. Yes, as you see people doing other things. And right? the consumer knows, too, because yes. now they're seeing what's happening, and they have a higher expectation. Yes. So oh, and the food race. craze was, you know, yeah. super duper alive. It was you imagine, though, so the chef at that at Tanta Diner was uh, uh, Comey at, uh, uh, not per se, uh, Thomas Keller, Napa Valley, French Laundry. French Laundry. Yep. And um, I had the pedigree of the Bellagio and uh, Aquavit and, you know, working in New York or whatever. And, man, you know, that was a really cool story that I was trying to bring a level of fun to this urban diner that was really, really sharp and technique focused and yeah. it can be casual and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. You can have an attitude and it can be well understood at the same time. You know, that was that front door. Right. So you, you walk in there and there's a 12 seat bar with the swivel chairs, mm-hmm. but it's a, it was like, it was like a candy store. How many seats total? 80-ish. Okay, so that's a good volume. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful number. Yeah. is a beautiful number. So, reflecting back at this time, your first restaurant, you had a two-year run, correct? It's not yeah, I owned it for two years okay. and then uh, basically sold it off to our partners and then they actually turned it again. I usually like to give my guests a heads up that I like to talk about weird shit. And it's not because I'm trying to be a jerk or anything. I think that where people get in trouble the most in this industry is with weird shit partnerships and money yeah um you had four partners uh like what 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 were the lessons for you in terms you you got the money how did you get the money well you know and if you don't want to talk about any of this stuff i'm not no that's fine i just i just want to word it i just want to word it the right way you know we got bailed out um kind of the idea and all the you know sweat equity that um my partners and i put in and then somebody an angel came through and helped us get open. And it was, it was just a, maybe I shouldn't talk about the specifics of the arrangement, but it was an arrangement that worked for everybody at the time. Okay. Four um, partners. Yeah. Different lanes. N- yes. You know, uh, there was one in the kitchen and, and, uh, two of us in the front of the house. Okay. Uh, one was a silent partner. Okay. But, um, and you were the fourth partner. Yeah. And you and were, what was your role? I was, front of the house Got it. Uh, dining room front of the house and then aj our partner at the time was bar front of the house and he um we worked we worked with a guy named nick kosovich who is also uh, a part of making that environment what it was so without getting into details with the, like, discussing any things that you don't feel comfortable discussing what advice do you have for people getting into partnerships in the restaurant industry to spread out the liability and to make to make the thing happen. Yeah, I mean, just understand the agreement you signed. Okay. Yeah, just understand the agreement you signed. And then, hey, you know, mistakes get made, don't they? Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, I think the like the same way that you treat an employee or with compassion or, or what have you. You have to have compassion for what's going on with the people that are your partners. And it's not all perfect, man. This is really hard. So stress is inherent just because you're working, right? And then together. And then, you know, from a profitability standpoint, it's always been a hustle to make money. And, you know, like, um, understand your agreement with your lawyers, understand your agreement with your accountants, and get your shit straight right away. And spreading out responsibility is is very hard because uh, it's, it's like people, they have different levels of responsibility that they're either capable of or, or want to take, you know, and... Um, then, then the business changes around you, and then 
you know, it ultimately does become about money. I mean, in the end of the day, it, you know, bills have to be paid in the, in the birth and in the death of a restaurant, it ultimately comes down to money. So if, if you're talking to somebody who's about to open a restaurant and they're, they're saying, Tim, I don't know what to look for on this agreement. What, what key things should I be looking for to protect myself in this mm. agreement? Well, I'm not a lawyer. I, I would say, I would say more your lease, <laughs> you know, uh, in combination with your uh, uh, partnership agreement, you know, just kind of really understanding the magnitude of the decision you're making and who might vote with you or who might not vote with you. And yeah. when certain things, you know, pop up, if you do a vote, you and know, at this like, point you're dreaming for your own place for six, six years. You, you we yeah. get the blinders on oh, where man. we're like, I didn't know shit. Takes. I knew everything and I didn't know shit. What didn't you know? Well, I didn't, you know, know I, d- I didn't know how to organize it all together with everybody else. I didn't know how to, you know, make sure everything worked every day numerically. Um, I didn't know how to survive road construction. Um, all we were, ba- you know, like when you, when you open a restaurant, there has to be that, that tight business component. You know, if you have a business partner that's into numbers that can help lead through numbers, Man, that's really helpful. Yeah. You know, we get into the day-to-day, uh, what's happening at the table level. Um, that's kind of where my experience comes. But when I'm at the table level as an owner or a manager, you have to see the dollars and cents on the table. You have to understand what the value is to your guests. And I didn't know any of that shit. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, you know, when you become an owner, you don't really realize the responsibility you have until you own it. And then that responsibility is big enough that you're like, oh, shit, you know, you can have a dream, but, you know, you are signing some stuff here. So yeah. you got to live up to it. Yeah. It's it's a hard reality. Yeah. It's a hard reality. I have love for everybody I've worked with. I have love for everybody I worked with. And it's still and it doesn't mean it was easy. Yeah. And I, I feel lucky that I'm at this point. Um. And, you know, like the work this way with partners continues. Yeah. So before we move on, um, I have to ask, and this is a question coming from that was inspired by Tommy. What does it mean to make love to a guest? It's just a sensibility. Do you remember saying that to your team? Well, (laughs) I I think I put it in the context that it's about understanding who you're with. Mm. And you have to have love to start. But everybody is somebody else that you're with. And you kind of have to figure them out to make them feel the pleasure from their perspective. Because you can't just like... So empathy. Yeah. You know, like everybody... Like I do what I do and I don't want to like, you know, fully submit that to the guest that comes in. But if somebody's wanting to be in charge or it's a first date or they're trying, you know, trying to be very uber polite and they don't know how to act with their guests, their date or whatever would help them. You help them help them make it more comfortable. What's that look like? That looks like understanding the person's day as soon as they walk in the door. That mm. looks like a first impression all the way up to sell to how somebody tells you that they have a reservation. Um, it's, it's it's being able to just read somebody's eye movements and understand that they're looking for somebody 
or that, you know, uh, they come in and don't want to talk to you and they walk right by you because their friends have told them they're already in there. You know, and understanding that, hey, are your friends in here? Sure, allow me to help you. Yeah, they can find that person on their own. It's a 44-seat restaurant or whatever. But, you know, it's about understanding. I can still offer them the way. Mm. So from what I'm hearing is attunement in tailoring each guest experience to the guest needs and not getting, getting off the script it, and, it, and it, really yeah. just being present and reading what's happening here and being able to switch who you are in any given moment to match which table you're at in that moment. There is a chameleon effect that I think is really important to good service. It's kind of just understanding the way that people are. Yeah. And not that I have to change necessarily who I am, but I can go formal. Yeah. I can go real casual. I can go flirty. Yeah. I can, you know, I, you know, I can go whatever way I need to go mm-hmm. and just reading the table. But, but that analogy of making love to somebody is a great analogy. It's a little, it's a little awkward to talk about. Right. But it's true when you have to tailor your service to somebody yeah. to meet their individual needs. Yes. And to understand that they have them, you yeah. know, you know, like the, you don't that Vegas was important there because somebody could have just lost a hundred thousand dollars on the table, and the pit boss is bringing them over to treat them to a complimentary meal in this fantastic restaurant. But this person just lost a hundred k, and they're thinking about it pretty hard in their head. Bring me the vouv. All right, we'll bring you this vouv rosé. Blah blah blah. You go over to it, and the bottle explodes. And it spins around like this with champagne all over the guest. Oh, excuse me. I know, but it's like the story. All over the guest that just lost $100,000. And it, it broke the ice for him and he laughed. How do you make love to that? That was the love. It was the mistake that happened and that, you know, you feel so bad. You have champagne on your face, dripping off your face because the bottle literally propelled itself around and around. And this person with so much money that they just lost their 100k laughs bursts out laughing like go get another he didn't pay for it (laughs) go get another you know and and so that broke the ice there and we didn't intentionally make love to the guests there it just kind of happened in a weird way but we knew in the beginning we thought we were going to just have to be like yes sir yes sir yes sir yes sir but something weird happened and it broke the ice he's like all right man the same idea, and he just kind of laughed it off, you know. Sometimes you fart making love. <laughs> the only thing you can do is laugh. <laughs> so, like, just roll with the punches. You, it's just <laughs> how it goes. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you it sounds like um, you, you dove into this restaurant. In terms of from the guest experience and the, the service and the experience that you were providing, you were making love. People did love you. They were coming back. It, it was busy. But there seems to be a, an issue with profitability or somebody you said came in and saved you or rescued you. Well, that was at the beginning to get okay. it open. Okay. Uh, then I had, you know, uh, then I had another opportunity pop up with Strip Club Meat and Fish, which okay. was uh, uh, a little bit more on my, um, with a little bit different partners. And I was trying to kind of expand what I was doing. I yeah. was looking to have more than one restaurant. When you... When you open and you have a little bit of equity, it doesn't get you anywhere you need to go as fast as you want to go. So I figured I could have a couple places with it growing equity. 
And that was my next step with some other great partners. We had numerous partners, but I had a little bit higher percentage of ownership. So you opened the restaurant with the idea of like recognizing that you needed to put sweat equity to build physical equity in this business. And then the hope was to sell it, to use that cash to do the next thing. Well, not really hoping to sell it. It's just kind of how circumstances worked out. I got a new deal and I'm like, okay, the partners wanted to go a little bit different direction and that's fine. Your partner's at the town talk. Yep. Got it. So this is important stuff. And this isn't like, yeah, well, we don't, I think it's what, go ahead. Well, yeah, I think it is important. You know, nobody talks about the breakups, right? Because it's like really hard. But there's so many lessons in this stuff, which yes. is why I like to go there. And yeah. I'm not trying to be weird and expose personal stuff, but like I'm trying to prevent these things from happening for other people. Mm. And I think you what, can't, you know, you can only lessons. really have, I sure there's, there's lessons, but you can't stop them from happening. I think the, the lesson, time changes everybody. And it doesn't That's sort true. of, you we know, dynamic like world. either. And, and so what was true with your partner eight years ago is not right. You People's know, and what desires. was true with your partner a year ago could not, it doesn't matter how long or whatever, but there's always change. And from my understanding and my lessons, I feel like the way to get ahead of these sort of things is to sit down and say collectively, where do we want to be in five years? What are we doing? What does it look like? How do we feel? How much money are we making? What are people saying about us? Yeah. What are we like? Are we still here? Or are we working on the next project? You know, I, I have to say that I've been always working on the next project and made it clear to the chefs that I've partnered with that I've, yeah. I wanted to expand and they were part of that. Um, it's been my uh, modus operandi to work with people and figure out their talents. And if I could, I believe that I can work with them and, you know, have love for them and, you know, respect their, uh, professionalism that we should move and try to do something, you know? And, and I, and, um, you know, I think the chef culture has changed too. You know, some people don't want reviews anymore. Like that's, you know, screw reviews and, you know, um, Maybe the drive to get a James Beard goes away. Did and you catch that re- recent recording <laughs> I published? <laughs> you know, and, and that's okay, you know, but, yeah. um, and that's okay. I think, was, I think it's good that those things are going away, yeah, honestly. I'm getting older, too, you know. Like, I don't necessarily need all of that kind of, uh, like, my, my the dream of having five places and having that sustain me, you know, started slowing. You know, it's like, oh, as I aged, as I had another kid, as I, you know, as my life came along, I was like, wow, this is really hard. I didn't understand the demands and, and, or the desired outcomes. Um, and I've had some losses and I've had some wins along the way. And, and even the losses are wins. Oh, you come out better. And I think that's how you go. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, I still have love for everybody that I've worked with. Like I honor and respect everything that they put into it yeah and and you know i just try to be the best partner i can be and push i wanted to still one lesson before we move on to strip club meat and fish um if if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice before going into town talk diner something that you know today that you wish you knew then what would that be well i mean we got we thought we had the money and we didn't so I think and so, and so that just delayed us. It just made it, you know, you have to like lock that down and have it before you start everything. You know, it's like being pre-approved, you're ready to go and you have the X amount of money. 
Um, you know, people piece together money in very, very different ways. They see space, they fall in love with it, they sign a lease, whatever it takes. The money doesn't come, you know, and you work it out. Yeah. And so I wouldn't try to do that. Yeah. Well, being undercapitalized <laughs> okay. is the number one reason why Absolutely. restaurants fail. And Absolutely. So whatever you think it's going to take, double it. Double Triple it. it. And then have a year of operating expense thereafter. So much money. It's so much money. And, and, you know, again, what you think is going to happen may not happen. So what you think is a year of operating expense may not turn into You might have to pivot. You might have to adapt. And then that your runway gets longer. Yeah. You know, so like... Yeah, it's not easy. But thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you about opening up. Well, I up. am. I yeah. am vulnerable. I, you know, it's it's the part of the business that I think people, you know, don't really get to see, and it's not always pretty, but it's kind of beautiful in a way. Like you're, we're all out here trying to do what we can to make it work for our families and our livelihoods, and you know, and. You know, we've dealt with extreme conditions, and it's always been a hard business. Like I say. You know, everybody knows that. And somehow it's like, oh, you know, I, still surprising. It's not surprising. Yeah. You know, people need, you know, one, two, three percent for a restaurant is a is a huge number. Because if it's only 10 percent profit, That's, you know, it's everything yeah. and seeing growth. There's you know, reported sales growth and that's fine, but prices are up. What would you expect to see? It doesn't mean there's more guests in restaurants. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so like it just, you know, and how far the dollar goes and, you know, some of the bullshit of the economy, you know, just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. So since 2008, Strip club meat and fish. Yeah. 2015 St. Dinette, where we're sitting today. Yeah. Beautiful space, by the way. Thanks, dude. Here. Uh, 2000, a year later, 2016 Moochies. Six months after we opened this space. Six months. Yeah, now. like eight, maybe eight. Yeah. And then I, then we have Moochies uh, Frozen. Yeah, which right? basically started as it was part of the idea with Moochies along the way. It okay. took, we, we stabilized the first few months of the business, but then we proceeded from there. And then I, I've seen that you have pl- plans to do other things. I saw in 2018 you were looking for a space for a Jewish deli. Did that ever Maven, okay. which happened very fast. Okay, It burned bright and burned out. And, you know, <laughs> again, you know, that was... Uh, a feature of maybe overbuilding or uh, under uh, estimating or overestimating the amount of traffic you're going to get. Um, we had, you know, excellent partners and the plan was good. And it was tight and the money was there, but the people didn't come. Mm. The people didn't come, you know, and we were doing something, you know, very specific with bagels and finding a volume business that paid the bills with an item that ultimately costs a dollar you know, to produce, you know, you have to sell a lot of $1 items at markup to make a lot of money. It was really hard. Yeah. And so then, you know, like we, we didn't get off the ground fast, uh, but it, it started to build. But then winter happened and, it, you know, there was no parking and people weren't going anywhere. You know, it was like a big, bad winter and things just... It's a million it, and one different things. It's variables. a million and one. It was yeah. really heartbreaking because... You know, I, you know, my partners in that case are, are really good friends of mine and I respect everybody that I was partners with. And, you know, it happened so fast that that was a real loss. And, um, not that I was left, you know, I don't have a sob story. Everybody took their hits on that one and, um, including me and I'm still paying for it, you know, but I think the, 
idea that we tried and what we did was awesome was heartening because, you know, I've never opened a place I wasn't proud of. But that doesn't mean it works. That doesn't mean it happens the way you dream it, you know? And so um, that one freaking hurt. So hindsight being twenty twenty, was it just a market match? Or was it the the was it just not in the right spot? The support couldn't pull needed? lunch business when we thought we could. Uh, couldn't the and then and then the it was a you know like a Montreal style bagelry, but we want we wanted dinner business and we really thought dinner would swing over there. Um, the location wasn't perfect. I thought it was going to be really really good, but it just never got busy there. Mm didn't work yeah uh is there any other project that should be on my radar in terms of lessons learned or every one of them has a lesson learned man um let's go back to uh strip club meat and fish yeah left off man so how so 2008 what's the story there like well the economy freaking crashed i came out of um point uh uh we came out of uh the the town talk you know and with a uh, amicable agreement and we made the split there and I started a business with uh, some people that I had met and um, we opened up on this hill. Was this Prairie? This, no, this is a strip club okay, and it's it. just up here by Metro State got and it. this building, building built in 1885 and it just had, the, it was, it was like brick walled, it had this little cozy, you know, 10, 11 seat bar with a drink well at the end of it. It had... A mezzanine with tables upstairs and this fireplace that pulled out of the wall and their office was behind it. It had a mystique and a darkness to it. And it it was for mica, but it was black, all black, and it was just dark and, you know, kind of brooding in there. And you open up the windows and you can look down over the city of St. Paul. There was a uh, I, it was a general store and you, I could just imagine the people tying their horses off in front of the joint, you know, like back then. And, um, and I'm like, this is, this is, I had had this idea called the strip club and I just kind of working through it. There's a place called strip house in New York that I ate and I'm like, God, they stopped short, you know, but strip house obviously did very well. Um, but I'm like strip club, the strip club. And we uh, paired up with uh, uh, grass-fed uh, beef purveyor, Thousand Hills Cattle Company at the time, and, and we served only grass-fed beef from that farm. And maybe a couple hour others as they developed over yeah. the years. We were open for 10 total years or so, nine and a half. Um, and so Head it was... a curve a, on that trend. Y- yeah, and you know, starting at the town talk to... Um, we were we were really really uh, uh, with the curve or ahead of the curve in terms of beverage program and shaking fresh ingredients and making our own juices and you know like re- really pushing that along making like uh, drinks more like as loved as as food or making them food in a way like something that would really fulfill you boozy milkshakes and then 2008 you know you really see the craft cocktail right. thing taking off drinks take 15 minutes to make. You know, but people love them and, and it's transformative when you get a cocktail that's just like, oh my God. And the palates of people are improving, so they're understanding more about what they're eating. Right. They've had this conditioning over the last 15, 20 years of finding things that were better and outstanding and the cream of the crop and the people that can make those things. And so, um, you know, that opening up the strip club became a dynamic, a little bit of the 
refinement uh, that I had learned, but definitely a little bit of the New York that I had learned, and definitely a little bit of this, you know, quality craft style of things, and definitely actual farm to table in some instances, in most instances. There, we did a really good job with that, and it's very hard to do. Um, but we kept it simple and uh, straightforward, and it was beloved. And um, you know, I when we opened, it was really, really slow for a little bit. But uh, uh, Rick Nelson came through from the Star Trib; he was the food writer at the time, and he reviewed it and he gave us three stars. You know, Town Talk Diner got three and a half. By the way, we got three stars from him, and then people started to come. And it was in a neighborhood another not otherwise traveled. Not you know, like people didn't go to that neighborhood to eat. They didn't go there for anything. I think there's something to be said about those those neighborhoods that are right on the edge of where it's at because if you can hold on long enough, whatever's on the edge tends to be in the middle of it eventually. Yeah. Is that, is that the case here? This just happened to click even though the economy had downturned, you know, 3M. With the steakhouse too. Yeah, you know, yeah, but you, you know, the, there's so much corporate, you know, business here. Uh, a lot of travel uh, had um, uh, resumed just before this. You know, we have 3M locally. We had uh, we have Ecolab locally. We have Travelers Insurance locally, and so this is still an industrious corporate town back in the day when everybody was downtown working. It was there's still a lot of big corporations here, so. Somehow, um, here in the cities and with that concept and that price point and that size of restaurant, which is small, we managed to do quite well for almost every one of the years. You know, there was not huge returns, but um, just every one of the years was rad. What was the reason for getting out of that restaurant? I mean, or unless, is there, what's the story behind? Yeah, sure. Well, we had done. We had done nearly 10 years wow. there. Um, I, it's kind of storybook. Like you open it up and you're like all of this experience and fun. You bring it into and it's a new chance. And you take the chance and your chef partner lives up to the hype and does a ton of specials and really works his tail off and gets others to, to do the same. And we kept the quality up the entire time. And like I, you know, we were somewhat profitable, you know, and we made it work. And um, you get to the end, and the lease is coming up, and you see changes in business. You see maybe the arc coming the other way, and you're saying, "Hey, uh, we could get out now and split up the 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 rest and move on to our next steps." I had already stepped into here, and I had already stepped into Mucci's. Um, so yeah, at this point you're you're a restaurant tour with multiple locations, yeah. right? So you yep. have three restaurants under your belt. Yeah, you know, and it quickly faded. You know, not in the wrong way, but it was the right way when we closed. Um, it quickly faded, being strip. Yeah, the, yeah, you know, like having three restaurants, right? Quickly faded. You know, it's like an accordion. You know, you yeah. go with the econom the economics of the situation, and you keep trying, right? You know, and again, I was still having that desire to own multiple restaurants. You know, and that would feed, you know, what I wanted to do financially and with my passions for a career. You bring something up. You're like, you're, you're having this conversation internally. Like now is the time. Maybe we're, we're peaking. Like, when do you know it's time to move on from something? I thought Maven was going to be what 
what helped me peak. Okay. Is it I because, thought that was I thought that was really I mean I thought it was gonna work. Is it because water and flour? Yep. Margins. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you know, um we just had beautiful, wonderful people working for us. It was a counter service model which was up and coming and we thought we were gonna hit that the right way and you know, it was busy for a while, but you know, again, you know, the overhead and the rents and everything, it just adds up. And, so and you it cashed did. in on a concept that you thought you, you we thought was going to go and we went well, for it. You had strip strip and you used that, the assets from that. No, to, I didn't or, have that much money. Did you, you know, sell it? Is that what happened? Or no, just we just closed it. Oh, you just closed it to free up assets to. Yeah, I didn't, oh, we didn't own that much, man. Okay. You know, like it's a small place, you know, you got equipment you use for 10 years you, and tables you use for 10 years and. You, I'm not. I am not a wealthy person. I've never accumulated a lot of wealth because of my businesses. Yeah. I have uh, worked in them tirelessly to make them go and provide myself with a living that I believe uh, sustains and supports yeah. my emotional uh, life and my professional right. life. My wife continued to be adventurers. You know, it's it's more about the things that you have now. Yeah. Than it is what uh, accumulation of things for me. Yeah. And I am now not necessarily in the late stages of my career. I expect to be doing this for a while, but I am, I, I have been since Maven trying to simplify things for myself. Well, I think that's one of the biggest lessons right there is uh, simplification. And yeah. that's one of the things I'm, what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I mean, I'm trying to get to the reality of what it is to own a restaurant. Yeah. So like, I hope I talk more people out of to- opening restaurants than I help people become successful in restaurants. And my management style includes that in it. I believe that it's important to have people understand what a $1,500 repair does to your weekly <laughs> income, right? You know, what the use of linens means on a daily basis and why are you why are you why is that on the floor you know and and the idea that a glass broken doesn't cost them it costs me you know you do need people to understand the pennies more than the dollars and that when you understand the pennies more than the dollars that brings you more money but you know i'm still rumbling through in my career trying to like you know get better understand more expand and then, you know, I think there's a lot wrong with the industry at large at this point. I want to unpackage that. Before we get into that, you have two hits that are rocking to this day, right? With, with Dinette and with Moochie. So what is it about these concepts, you know, like the, the, the wins? Let's just, let's just t- touch on those. And then I want to talk about where the industry is and like yeah, what needs to change. It's all beautiful. When we opened up here, we op- St. Dinette, we opened up. Uh, with the idea that, you know, it was kind of a North American restaurant, right? And we could do anything from Canada, Mexico, and and the United States. The center of North America is about 450 miles west of here, almost due west. So we had like right smack dab in the middle of it. And we opened up and it was walk-in only. And Lower Town was uh, in USA's, USA Today's uh, list of the top five most burgeoning on-fire zip codes in the nation. And the CHS field was going in here where the Saints play. And that's part of the fabric of St. Paul. It really is. That is an experience. That is a good ball game. And they really enliven it with very, very like homey things. A ball pig instead mm-hmm. of a, you know, ball boy, you know. Um, and it's just, you know, uniquely St. Paul. And the 
the light rail uh, was terminating down here. So everybody thought people from Minneapolis would have instant access over here and it would be so easy and and wonderful. You know, and as a restaurateur, I always believe, you know, you really can't you you really can't blame whether you're successful or not on what happens or doesn't happen. Oh, the stadium's going in here and everything gets leased around it, but then the stadium deal goes down and you know, or, or there's just so many big factors when you're working in a city. But um, we knew we always needed to exist and that these these accentuations were just accentuations. They would help bring people to us. But as a restaurateur, you have to bring the people yourself kind of in a lot of ways. You know, you have to really bring them in here yourself. And, I, and we did an awesome job of that. And we were full with lines, people waiting to get in and restaurants were still hot, you know. But, you know, the $16 burger thing came up then and the tipping and Danny Myers kind of ruffling of the feathers in that, you know, service fee scenario. I'm still hopeful for that. I just don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think it's the obvious answer. Um, in a lot of ways to, you know, and it's not even, it's not, it's more for the operator for sure. You know, like, again, you know, people are looking for organization, um, um, minimum wage down here is $13 an hour. So our servers make $13 an hour. And then if you have a tip model, they make whatever they make on top of that $13 an That's hour. Fantastic. Well, it's really good also, but you know, the business is paying that and we're not able to really raise our, pri- listen, we have raised our prices, but there's only so far yeah. you can go before yeah. the equation becomes. I want to get. I want to get here. I really do because I think that this is a lot of the stuff that you are trying to echo intentionally with your podcast and having these conversations. And if I if I'm reading between the lines, it sounds like your your target market is the consumer and what you're doing to educate the consumer. These conversations need to have. I think they need to be had. Um, but what I want to just get like facing reality as an operator, um, and. And how the guest might affect you instead of how you might affect the guest. Um, sure. But uh, I think it's more, you know, just the, the just that, like, the, the hard part that nobody wants to talk about because it's not hospitable. Yeah. It's not hospitable to let people know your problems and then, and then you know, like, or, you know, that cancellations are a big deal. It's not right. necessarily hospitable. But, you know, I think people should live up to their account, you know, be accountable for things like right, this. Right. And what's wrong with that? Nothing. You know, like, I don't think so well, either. I don't think it's just when you say it, it doesn't feel hospitable. And I totally get that. I've been told it's a bad look. You know, don't don't complain about shit the guests do. How guess what? else will the guests ever know? They don't know what the they don't know the economics of a restaurant. They're just, oh, we're not going to make it. They don't think about how that affects the fill the seats. Yeah. And I talked about how these cities are still earlier, you know, how these cities are still rocking, you know, from the cultural events, the cultural changes and a pandemic. And, you know, it's really you don't see the same amount of people on the streets. You you just, you know, people are there's a there's a perception or a fear of there's a lack of safety down here and I don't give a shit. You know, I, I stand on the corner the same way I did in a neighborhood I knew shit about. And I, I said hello to everybody that walked by with confidence and heart. And it's also my neighborhood now, you know, and I'm with you in this. And, um, I, you know, when we left, uh, I opened another, I flipped Maven into Trattoria Moochie and that I was sole owner on that. And, Man, uh, it was going good. We were we had huge amount of people visiting us in that, 
you know, concept. And then, bam, we were six months in, and then, bam, COVID. Ugh. And I was just trying to rescue. I was doing whatever I could to rescue myself out of that. It didn't work. I had to close it. And I'm paying that off. You know, like, that's, that's. There's a real, is this reality of what, what, what it's like to be It was a, a good fucking restaurant, too. Yeah. And it was a good fucking restaurant, you know. But it was it's just really hard to, you know, to be able to, at the percentages of success, the success rate of restaurants, profitable restaurants, right? I think, you know, Strip Club was not a huge uh, cash cow, but it was ultimately a story that was complete, a book that was written from beginning to end. And we closed with the same amount of respect for ourselves and our partners as we opened, and um, it was a beautiful time. Yeah. And I could take that and I could be like, damn, dude, yeah. that's forever. And the legacy is set. Yeah. That one worked. Town Talk, it was about what it was at the beginning and that vibrancy and that directness with the guests. They walk in that door and if there was a wait, we'd hand you the clipboard. You'd write your name down, how many people you are and the time you arrive. And you handed it back to us. You know, it was a connection, like a visceral connection to people that they had never gotten, say, in a restaurant here before. We busted their balls. We would literally just start clapping from people, random people when they come in the door. We're like, oh, guys, look. And we just start going like this. (laughs) And people walk in the door and they'd be like, what? This is so weird. People walked out because we did shit like that because they were overwhelmed. (laughs) And it was like, oh, come back. We'd walk outside and be like, come back. You know, we were welcoming you. Really? (laughs) But, you know, it's a lot um, to, to, to... to make the story happen front to end and it's only happened once in my career and I don't know always the stories that's part of the stories that are going to be written for me Mm. and the changes culturally that have affected the way I think about everything how I'm not know of the the these uh, these ways you think differently because of these experiences you had. What are you doing today the, through your lens of experiences that you're doing different because of your compounded exposure to the world of restaurants? Well, again, you know, I have deepened my compassion for the folks that the live the lives of the folks that I work with, um, and understand that there are so many other stresses going out now that really weren't part of the cultural, social collective before. How does that manifest in what you do day to day? Well, it manifests in that, you know, when I see people, I might expect that they're not, you know, I might expect that they have more troubles than they did before. Um, I might expect that they're a little more money conscious than they were before. I might expect that um, somebody passed away in their life recently. You know, a million plus folks die and everybody around you carries a bit of that with them. There's definitely, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of trauma for people that came through those years. George Floyd was harder than COVID. George Floyd is still much harder than COVID. And... You know, when I understood what was happening, like, you know, uh, and, and what I didn't know and the amount of things that I learned uh, and the sadness that I felt 
in the helicopters ringing in my ears overnight and, 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 and knowing that I'm so privileged that I, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how much I hurt because there's so many, many others out there that have never had the opportunity that I've had. And I just didn't want to take anything for granted uh, that I had taken granted of before. Um, and it was really humbling uh, and a lesson was learned on, you know, what I didn't, what I, when I, I didn't pay mind to. Right. And I, you know, and it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I was consciously ignoring something, but it just goes on. Oppression goes you don't on. Know what you know I mean, I'll tell you, man. Um, and, and I, and I really thank my kids for br- bringing, you know, me with them through their childhoods and understanding what's going on in their classes. And, and my daughter's a teacher now and her, her heart and her compassion has led her to try to find a scenario where folks need it the most. And that's where she goes. And I'm just learning so much from them. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for that. We're take, no, thank you. I love that. And uh, I think it's important that we, I think there is a shift happening right now of this understanding and empathizing and you, you in your career of being places like New York, Las Vegas with these yeah. places of abundance, right? And you start to acclimate to that abundance and you don't recognize how that's just the top 1% of the 1% and that it's, it's hard to wrap your mind out of, around the thing, the people that don't have until yeah. you've been in it and you've seen it yeah. or you've known somebody who's in it yeah. and i think i think we're finding a i mean do we have a long way to go absolutely are we finding a balance is there a, i think is there a transformation happening today I, absolutely and i think really restaurants are at the forefront of that transformation well restaurants are the ones that move in and take the risk first anywhere right. anywhere you go you know yes. and those are the, we're the type of people that um are hardy enough to take it um we bring emotions with us generally we bring craft and, and training with us generally and uh, desire to understand risk. Yeah. My mission statement is to change the world through inspiring, empowering, and changing the industry. And I think that, that if, we can, if we can transform the, the industry, the industry is going to be at the forefront of ch- changing the world because yeah. we, are, we work with the, with, with the have-nots. With the people. We're so close to those people. Yeah. And I, we have to bridge you know, we are the we are the bridge between the haves and the have nots. And I think that is what we're here to do is to educate the consumer. And it, and we aren't going to make lives better for us until we educate the consumer. And on that note, we're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to be back to talk about where you are today, what you're doing with Niver Niverland. Uh, and I know you want to talk a lot about with what, what's wrong with the industry. So, like, we're gonna, I'm going to let you loose, my friend. I mean, I can't wait. I'm talking I don't, I don't know. I don't, you might be surprised. I'm not going to go loose. We'll, we'll figure it out. I hope you do. <laughs> Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. 
Greta will be leading the training, supporting you and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant. But during this no cost to you 60 day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. If you're tired of the other tater, you ought to try Tater Cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve. Tater Cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors. All the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package. From the freezer to the fryer to your guests, Tater Cakes comes in a variety of flavors, including bacon, cheddar, chive, buffalo chicken, bacon, jalapeno, and more. And I got to hone in a little bit deeper here on this deliciousness. Bacon, cheddar, chive features creamy cheddar cheese, big bacon bites, sour cream and a hint of chives and of course crispy crunchy potatoes Mm, sign me up for that you can serve them in a variety of different ways and in many different applications great for dining delivery and to go with all the uncertainties in the world today, we should be certain that our food always has great flavor and Tater Cakes provides that comfort in every bite. Request samples at taterkegs.com. That's T-A-T-E-R-K-E-G-S.com. Taterkegs.com. We're back. Um, hi. Hi. This has been a lot of fun. We have about 14 minutes before we have to start wrapping it up. Respect your day and your time. More more than 14 minutes actually we have about 24 minutes i'm Even good better, uh, this is we're talking man this is <laughs> nice it fun? You know, it's nice it's a somewhat like a therapy session for me you know and i i do this with feeling i get that off. you know and uh so uh i think people trust you because you do it with feeling yeah um or they trust me because i do it with feeling and um it's not always the perfect uh, angle it works for me. It's, it's, I'm really enjoying the conversation. And one of the reasons why, I mean, you were on my radar. I, I think I can't remember when I first saw your podcast. And I just, I think I saw a clip or something. And I was like, this dude gets it. And I was like, what's the story behind this Tim Niver guy? And then I started like following you on Instagram. And I was like, man, next time I go back to Minneapolis, like I'm surprised I didn't connect with you the last time I was here. And I came back and everybody that I've spoken to before today while I've been in town for the past almost week has said, you got to talk to Tim Niver and um, you have a voice, man. Um, You're creating awareness. And I think that people have to be more willing to speak up because we're not going to make things better in this industry until we get the reality of it out. Because to your point, it's not hospitable. And I think we've hospitalized ourselves into a corner where we are, we can't go any further. Like there's literally no meat left on the bone. And we have to put some meat back on the bone. Yeah. What the word the, hospitals in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what are, the, like, what are the messages? What are the things? Like, if, what are the topics you want to create awareness of? Um, I, you know, in, in all sincerity, I started the podcast to bring um, 
a, a, a light on my businesses through through my eyes um, in a promotional way. I had themes that I wanted to talk about. You know, how long have you been going now? Uh, it's been a couple years. Okay. And I, I don't really, I don't know, I don't really keep track. Over ten thousand followers, I want to say. On, yeah, on the show. Yeah, I had a couple this this year that really kind of um, uh, got that rolling. You know, and you know that it was. It started to 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 bring you know I'm not the chef of the business but I but I I was the personality and I kind of always in the past had hoped and again modus operandi that the that the the chefs are the ones that continue to want the attention and are driving and striving and and while they are again people's lives change and I realize that as I get to this part of my career I really need to embrace the fact that I have. I have been and that I am the face of my places. And so the podcast was to, you know, share light with that. Plus the people that I know have been doing this for a while, you know, in this town. But it did turn into, in in certain episodes, it did turn into, hey, do you really, I felt like restaurateurs were feeling the same way I was. They would tell me, they would say, hey, I'm glad you opened up about this because in I feel like I felt this collective loneliness in in the midst of struggle. Can you tell me how you were feeling? Like, take me there. What were you feeling? What was the well? The... People ask me, you know, how you like they call you. How you doing? Is it busy? You know, what do you see? You know, or or uh, if there was a part of a podcast that approached it a little bit, then you know, I'd get a little DM, and I'm like, oh, you think the same stuff is going on in other places. Like, you feel alone and on an island when you're in a restaurant, and in the city, slow around. Yeah, you. We're all in the little silos. Our own and, silo. And you feel alone on an island, and you know, it can't really be heard from an island. I think. In this culture now, we're uh, in in this in the cities now, even more so. You know, it's kind of a guarded. It's kind of a, a, a there's a little bit of a guard up, and people who's guarding um, people in the suburbs, people in the city. Uh, there's like nobody wants to make a mistake. You know, we're all kind of still walking on eggshells. You know, because one thing could blow up this whole city again and make it go crazy. You know, you know, okay. you know. So we're kind of like. We're kind of walking on eggshells, you know, worldwide things are a little bit in upheaval. And we're just trying to find some, you know, like, I didn't want other restaurateurs to feel alone. And when enough people ask you for help to open their joint or for some advice, you start to understand how many people could be feeling alone in the process. And so I started saying a little bit, things that, that put it out there a little bit more vulnerably and in, in in terms of what a business owner might feel in a restaurant, and I, in in essence, I didn't want to people to feel as lonely as I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I love what you're doing. Uh, it's it is lonely at the top, and I think that I'm hopefully you and I, the work we're doing, encourages people to know that they're not alone. Reach out to other restaurant owners. Talk to people. I don't know what what's going on. I'm not at the top. I, I was worried to start this podcast because I didn't think people were going to be willing to talk to me about what 
they do that makes them successful because they didn't want either a want the competition. The reality too, as I started talking, I mean, I was inspired to create this podcast by listening to entrepreneurs and other spaces share their story, primarily in the world of marketing and tech, sharing their entrepreneurial journeys. Yeah. And they're, they, they are success stories, millionaires yeah. rolling in the dough. Absolutely. Didn't take me long to realize that behind all these quote unquote successful restaurant tours that they are hurting so bad. And I'm like, my job is to make an example of these people who are from the outside looking in, the Thrillists, the Food and Wine magazines, the James Beard, the Michelin stars, all these people thrusting accolades on these individuals, seemingly so successful, are trying to figure out how to, how to pay the rent this month. What is going on? Why are, we, why are we celebrating these people? I'm not saying that they're not worth celebrating because they do amazing work and they care so much and they give so much. But why can't people have security? Not not Bentley's security in our industry. I started avoiding James Beard Award winners in Michelin star interviews because my goal is to find out what are the people who are fiscally responsible doing and how do we bridge <laughs> the gap between systems, you know, like like uh, sustainable like business practices in terms of food and sustainability and doing the right thing with oh. food. But how do we make that profitable? How do we find a middle ground where we can scale and be profitable, have security for ourselves and our people? I'm, yeah. I'm on a rant right now. No, but it's it's a it's a big deal because we you know break the cycle. we want we want I want people to have an appropriate minimum wage. I respect the fact that Minneapolis and St. Paul are doing that. At the same time, we did mention at the beginning of this that this would be hard and very very difficult to sustain because it's a large increase and we employ a lot of people at minimum wage because they're tipped otherwise so we employ a lot of minimum wage workers they get tipped otherwise everybody now makes well over 20 bucks 20 bucks is absolute minimum now is that even enough to to make a well it's pretty good for us saying saying you know that (laughs) this is what we have Given the rising other minimum wage, this is what we have in terms of inflated costs. You know, like this is why the quotient becomes a little out of balance for folks and their current budgets. You know, we're you talking know, about the consumer. Yeah, yeah. What before I? I'm curious. What are the themes that you wanted to talk about when you started your podcast? I want that to come out so I know what to focus on. Oh, I, I don't. I didn't. I'm glad I'm not talking about them actually okay. because I got through that I got I got through that um I'd never done this before and I was just really trying to figure out how the hell to do this and I didn't know what my voice was going to be and I didn't want to say the wrong thing and get canceled and right. I did want to have an opinion and then all of a sudden I got a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. so those themes became less important you know, I really go in, understand it, try to go in and I, I do research on the guest or I know them for a long time and I know their story. And, um, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's all different now, man. It's just all different. The way that this all comes together is, a is, it's still a mystery. We're still making it happen though. Yeah. I mean, I feel if I'm reading between the lines from what I've seen online and what I hear from you now, um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, so please feel free to correct me if I'm not hitting it. I will. Um, it seems like the fundamental change that needs to happen is on the perception of the consumer. 
there needs to be a cultural shift, a collective cultural societal shift on what do we value? Mm. Is it food? Name a foodie city. Austin, Texas. Okay. So why didn't you say Minneapolis? You know, Minneapolis has been very surprising while I've been here. It's very good. No, it's very, very good. And I would put it up there. Actually, culturally, Austin supports that dining scene. Yeah. Name another one. There's so many. Okay. Nashville. But there's, uh, right. But there's music and entertainment and, you know, those kinds of things in that little quaint town that got so high end, you know. Very, it's not expensive. Charleston. I was just going to say Charleston. That okay. And, you know, it's very expensive to eat out in yeah. Charleston. Yo. There's you know. some big money in those places. Old Absolutely. Money. Coastal. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think Minneapolis is for sure a foodie destination. But it may not be necessarily a food culture here. Right. That's big enough to support what that high... So do you mean local like incomes? That. Is that, what that? You, is that local, the local income, the, the people no, that No, I think the, the income supported. I don't think the pallets do. Okay. Uh, Minnesotans are, they eat hearty, you know, uh, it's, it's cold a lot, you know, they have cabins yeah. and it's a beautiful life, but it's not necess- it's more of a cabin culture than I would say like a dining out culture. There now, is a bleeding of, sorry, did I cut you short? Maybe. Sorry. Now, I'm not saying there isn't one because this town has supported some amazing chefs and Gavin is really towing the line with the level that he has brought to town and he is out there paving the way for others that to understand that that level is achievable here yeah and he continues to associate with high and uh brands that um um that you know help him keep his level and his associates are now he's been here long enough that his legacy is starting you know to happen here in the city where that level will continue through the others that have worked with him yes and and and, and so you know we need trailblazers we need somebody yes. really pushing that in and there's a lot of desire for him to do that at this point yeah. in his career and he's been very successful I, with it i think he was so smart to come here uh with with the the hometown boy he had. yeah hometown boy going. so there's, there's there's that you know there's a lot of loyalty factor here too and the thing and i'm happy you brought his name up i had him on the show he was a great guest yeah um, when i think of gavin Kaysen and just being a around the people that he mutual connections, people that know him that I've had the, pl- the pleasure of speaking to and getting on the show, like Peter Campbell with the red wagon pizza co uh, talking about their experiences yeah. with Gavin, what Gavin is, what he does is the epitome of what I'm trying to make an example of the ripple effect. Yeah. When you, have success if you raise yourself up if you go to work for the daniel baludes of the world and you get this experience and you get the good fortune of having access to people like that you bring it into a community you lift yourself up and you pull people up absolutely the community changes with you and you have to lift yourself up in order to get the leverage to pull others up with you but when you pull up those around you they they go one layer out and they pull up you're a shining example all the all the boats rise in the tide and i and i'm very competitive but I want you near me yeah. and I want you to be open near me and I want you to help me create the verve mm-hmm. and I want to be, you know, like next to people that 
respect what's going on in the industry. And I may not be white tablecloth, but that doesn't mean I don't know it. Right. And I can understand where everybody's trying to go with right. their concept, you know. And so I think what really is, is, is important, though, that there is, you know, I may, I may have in a, for a couple years taken the yoke and tried to be that. I I put down that yoke. Other people need to to put that yoke on and drag into yeah. the future in the in a, in a in a certain way. And so for me, there's a little shift there. And I you know, I matured early, and I was on the varsity basketball team when I was a freshman. Right when I was a sophomore, everybody was taller than me, and I wasn't as good anymore. You know, that that doesn't mean I wasn't really good. Yeah, that doesn't mean I wasn't outstanding. But people learn more and go beyond you. This and you got to like yeah. you, you. I mean. I'm all for that. And yeah. whatever anybody wants within my business, server, steward, whatever, I want what they want. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't need to hold them. I want to support yeah. them on their way. Or if they feel like this is ultimately it and this is what they want to do, great. Yeah. I think in, uh, I would love to get your feedback on this um, because you were in it far more than I was. You know, the, the people you've surrounded yourself with. I think that the industry was guilty of playing the finite game for a while. I don't know if you're familiar with these terminologies, yes. finite versus infinite game. Yeah. Simon Sinek, great book, yes. infinite game. And you, um, yes. What is your interpretation of the finite game? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I do believe you have to plan the end at the beginning. Start uh, with the end in mind. Yes, because you, in our business, things do end pretty quickly. So I would say that there's a lot of that, you know, how do we make this work quickly? And um, what I had do you a, mean? How do we make this work? Will well, you get your money back quick. You got to start. If you're, yeah, if you're you got to run away. You, you got to. Yeah, get you got to be able to, like you say, the un, being undercapitalized. You, you know, you got to, but you still have to get off the ground quick and understand how to manage that cash flow and what your business is actually going to be and what it morphs into environmentally and culturally that you don't know about. Um, but understanding the end. Uh, is important because ultimately I think if you open a restaurant, you're going to close one. So maybe, so maybe expand the idea of making money fast and understanding that it's only the first inning, you know, uh, there's so much more that happens on the way. What is the end? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it ends differently for every place. You know, like I say, there's a, there's places that last for 30 years and we all say that's a grand accomplishment because no fucking restaurant lasts 30 years. And then we congratulate restaurants that are around for 20, 20 years. And you're like, wow, no restaurants last for fucking 20 years. Right. That's amazing. So when you start a restaurant, do you really believe it's going to last for 20 years? I think do most you really people, believe it? I think most people's retirement plan is death in this industry. Just keep going until I can't go anymore. But what happens when you literally can't go anymore? Well, I mean, and you I no understood, you know, like I totally hit that point where I was like, okay, right now I don't feel like opening other restaurants because I don't have it in me because I'm not, you know, like in my creative brain right now, I'm still somewhat in survival mode trying to piece together what will be the last year of our lease here. And what that looks like in a city that's completely changed. How do I go out? Am I going to be as busy as when I started? No. Am I going to be able to renew the lease? Is something going to change in a year that shows me that I should re-up for five? Hmm. 
And so you have to sense the scene, man. You know, the restaurant can be good. It can be busy on days. It can be busy on nights, you know. But we don't have, we don't have, we're not open Monday, Tuesday, dude, because there aren't enough people to do that. Mm. Now, we could find the employees. There's not enough people to do that. Got it. So we had to, like, really etch out what we thought, our, where our money can be made, and manage that, those pieces very specifically. And... You know, we're not as busy as we were last year. Mm. But downtown isn't. You know, October was really good last year. This yeah. October was like, eh, there's no prediction. Mm. How do I predict? How do you predict how many people are coming? I mean, there's a million different things that could happen. Oh, well, you know, and other things <laughs> you know? that that pop up. Yeah. And, and what neighborhoods are on the up? And where is an A location now? Mm. You know? I mean, there's just so many things that change. You know, I think I did believe my restaurants were going to last forever because I believe they were good enough um, to last forever. That, But even though they've closed, they have lasted forever. And they are still a part of people that are working in this town, still a part of uh, uh, the nostalgia for a, a time when restaurants were... Like that was like, ah, you know, a a time where you're trying to do something different, but not too different so that everybody would love it. You know, a time when big concepts worked, you know, and it wasn't about the chef. Yeah. You know, so when I think of the finite game um, versus the infinite game, uh, what I think back to my thought of, I think the industry was guilty of playing the finite game for a while if I'm using Simon Sinek's words from that book, the finite game is about winning. The end game is about being the best and beating everybody else and getting the recognition from the industry is like, I'm the best in the Northeast or the Midwest. But what happens after that, what happens after you spend your entire career putting energy into being the best, what happens next? Oh, I have that problem. You know, I think I just reckoned. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly when. Uh, with how I've, I see success in myself. You know, I've already achieved it. I've already achieved it. And I didn't even know it. Everything you do and move on from, good or bad, is some sort of success. You're right. And it is accumulated inside me, inside the people I work with, and has either inspired them to go forward in the industry or not ever. Or, you know, so, uh, in, in relationships. You know, it's inspired relationships. So what does winning the game look like for you today? How do we know we're winning? I think there's such a value in straight effort. Just that... You, that, you're, that you put in the time necessary to stay where you need to stay and you don't cheat yourself of a level you know. Um, I don't need to, you know, remark the tables with silverware at Moochie's because it's not that fancy a joint. But we do. There's big flavors all over that plate. You need new plates to try this new flavor. You, you can't just mix everything. You know, some of those... Some of those finer values are still implemented in a super casual way. Um, and I, and it, it keeps it it keeps it right in my brain to still not cheat myself of everything I've learned. Even though I I don't wear a tie anymore, 
I don't know who does. I used to wear a tie to work every day at Aquavit. Nobody does that anymore. Very few places, you know. So um, it's who I am now, and that's the biggest part of the this you know journey for me. And 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 I I didn't give myself credit because I always want to be the best. I always wanted to win. I'm very competitive, and and it and it really took me a while to understand that my success has already happened. What happens now is just gravy, and it's another success in motion mm. one way or the other you know some of the greatest successes that i've had here have already happened whether i like it or not the opening itself you know just being there in that time and being crushed in those moments of business i mean that's a huge success what fills your cup today I guess it's that I haven't given up, you know, yeah. like I haven't given up. I'm still grinding it out mm-hmm. in, in my own way. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm not at like the fine at the top of the, of anything. I have my restaurants, you know, I, and people know me and I, 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 I want my reputation to, to precede me the right way. Um, I am fallible. I am, vulnerable i hurt i love you this is such a great time you know all that stuff all in one you know um and i still have that um and it's just i have not given up man i have not given up and in and, and connecting with with you and talking about what the spirit of the industry is and that it may be hard but it's still yeah i mean what There's we get out of better. food yeah. you need it what we get to do, I think most people are starved from today. We get to make real human connections face to face. We get to be seen in the moment and valued for the thing we do. Instantaneous gratification, which is, I think, baked into our DNA as humans to be seen, to be valued, to be appreciated. We get that fucking filled. Dude. Yeah. We get that. Not it's a, a refresh world, though. Yeah. And we want more, quicker, faster. I think attention spans are a little shorter. Right. And, 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 you know, maybe that's part of it, too. What does passing the torch mean to you? Um, people grab the torch that want it. I, it's not about me passing it to anybody. People grab the torch if they want it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd hand it to them. You know? Uh, and... You, you, there's there's a person who wants the torch and there's I a think, person that doesn't. Am I too bold in saying I think that that is the game, is to pass the torch? <laughs> no, I don't care what you say. I mean, that's, I mean, that's great for me. For me, it just happens that there's people out there that have learned from me right. that that there's a healthy legacy surrounding that. You know that you know that uh, somebody leaves a restaurant of mine and somebody else's restaurant would want to hire them because they know it's a good place. Right. You know um, that that's that's very that's very fulfilling. Right. But also the people that stay so long because they love their job. I think if we study the most successful restaurant tours, like the, the Danny Myers of the world, like Gavin Case, and we already highlighted, it's about it's about not lifting yourself up, but lifting up the industry, so that the next generation 
is better off than the way we came into it. The reality of it, it really helps with that. Understanding what the ideas behind partnerships and legal agreements and what you can and can't do, you know, it comes up all the time. And it's important and it's important for everybody also to understand that people change along the way and you that should be part of the the idea going in. Mm. Um and you never know what's going to happen, but this is still like it's heart of the home is the kitchen, and I still I believe that the restaurant industry is it vital to be the places where we do that reconnection. We get back out and we do do the face to face connection, and we use our manners and treat each other with some sort of general nice spirit that that also does accumulate. Um, it does accumulate. You know, like we get a lot of people that come in and said, my, "My, like the mom and dads that come in, they're like, our kids eat here." And they're, they know where to eat. Mm. And the mom and dads come in and they're like, you'd like this. You'd like Bucci's. Mm. And they tell us. And I'm like, mm, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, because I know that somebody wants their mom to eat at my place. Mm-hmm. That means that, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you, friend. Eric. Um, me too. And thanks for letting me, you know, spit, spit my truth. Yeah, man. Of course. And uh, I'm going to wrap up with a few questions I ask all my guests. We're almost at the end. Um, what is one thing about your businesses, your values, the systems, anything in the four walls of your restaurants or you that is truly unstoppable? Uh, I, I really feel like we base everything on um, our employees and who they are and don't try to change them um, and just have everybody be who they are. And it starts there with that comfortable level. And from there, we just work on top of it but you don't try to change people you know work with them as they are and and that really creates a bond between you because you are who you are you come here and you you can you can just be you there's no hiding behind a script or there's no hiding behind an alter personality be you got it the mission statement again is to change the world through inspiring empowering and transforming the industry and i think we're going to achieve this by transforming one owner at a time through making an example of people like you so how have you personally transformed who are you today versus the man you were when you got into this industry well i've i've seen my limits um i see what i can achieve i see what i have achieved I feel like I did it with honor and respect. And I look back and I don't have bad memories, even of the hard things. You know, you grieve for a while. But right now, I think I feel like I have something to offer still. If you got the news, this is a big one, so ears open. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Well, use your manners because I believe it's the beauty of, it's like the essence of kindness. One. Knowledge equals confidence equals sales. Two. Look people in the eye. This has been a lot of fun. Thank Same you so here, much, Eric. Tim. Um, I really enjoyed this. Uh, if 
if I'm hanging out in this town longer and there's somebody I need to make an example of, I think I already gave you a few names of people I have spoken to, but there's somebody that I haven't mentioned to you yet. Who do you think I need to talk to? Who do you respect and admire? If there were a guest in this show, you'd be like, I want to hear what they have to say. It doesn't have to be in this town. It could be anywhere in the country too. Oh, well, you know, rectangle pizza. Have you heard about rectangle? They have come up a few times now, you know, so they have an energy and a spirit and a frivolity and uh, uh, I, that's akin to something that I remember from the Town Talk Diner. But it's modernized and inclusive beyond what I understood when, before I knew what fucking inclusive was. And they just, you know, they're silly. They have fun. It's what they, it's what they purvey. They're creative. You know, it's a more modern look at what businesses are trying to be with the culture around them, with what their targets are. Um, they're younger than me, and I get to see, you know, kind of a new breed of business that I didn't produce, couldn't have thought of, wasn't smart enough to do or whatever, but it, it's okay because it's specifically theirs. Yeah. And it, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's not always about the pizza. It's about it's about the people who make the pizza, yeah. right? And so I just feel like the pizza is really good. Yeah, and it's but it's also style, right? like these are yeah yeah. But there but the, there's just a sweetness yeah. that I and it's not syrupy. It's it's of the times and it feels appropriate now. Who's the name behind Rectangle Pizza? I should talk to Jeff. Jeff and Brianna. All right, look yeah. out, Jeff and Brianna. I'm coming after you. And how can we connect with you? Thank What's you. What's the call to action? How do we find your podcast? How can we come work for you? If we're inspired by you, like let us know. Well, you know, I, I'm just going to keep putting it out there. You know, Niver Niverland has has been a, a great outlet for me and a good creative outlet for me. But we're still putting such great food on the table at both of Moochie's and Saint Annette, and you know. Honestly, I just I just want it to be a true experience. Every time you come in, you'll probably see me working the floor, you know, and say hello. Awesome. This has been so much fun, Tim. There is no question, my friend. You are unstoppable. And this is episode 1052. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 1052. We'll have a summary of today's discussions, as well as any links to tools or services recommended in today's conversation and how to connect with Tim over there. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Tim. Yeah, man. Cheers. Appreciate you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Tim Niver, for getting real, for getting vulnerable. This was a great one. And honestly, uh, Minneapolis has been great. We still have a couple more Minneapolis interviews coming your way, but this has been a great experience for me, and I hope you're enjoying this content too. And what you're getting right now is a shining example of what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like. I'm going to be living on the road. I am out of my apartment. Uh, Whether that lifestyle looks like I'm in a motorhome or a trailer, or if I'm just doing the long-term Airbnb rentals, I'm committed to being on the road. I'm already chomping at the bit to get back out there. And uh, I just want to take this more journalistic approach. I want to go to these cities and I want to, you know, let the cities tell me who I should talk to and just follow the leads and be raw and be transparent. And uh, I love this, this, this work we're putting out there. I think the content's getting better. I don't know what you think. Um, but this is this is exciting. 2024 is going to be a great year. This is 10 years. We're about to eclipse 10 years. That's that is freaking crazy. 
And I just want to say thank you guys so much for helping me get to this point, for for your support over the years, for your downloads. I literally couldn't have done it without you. The the the, the words of encouragement, your reviews you've left, oh, man, that's what it's all about. And uh, I feel like we haven't even started yet. We're just getting going. The next 10 years is going to be amazing. We are relaunching restaurantstoppable.com. We're going to have a content library over there so you can be far more intentional with your listening. And uh, I just want to respect that time. You guys work so hard. You don't have a lot of free time. I want to make the content searchable by location, i.e. city and state, by the type of restaurant, by the type of restaurant tour, uh, by you know if they're fast, casual, fine dining, full service, pop up, you name it. Uh, we are getting so organized over there and I'm psyched for that. We're going to have our community element as well. Uh, we'll have live events. And if Eric Cacciatore is going from zero to five restaurants in five years or less, how is he doing it? I'm going to be collaborating and partnering with the people I would be going to, to open a restaurant tomorrow. And we're putting together a 12 month training program, a coaching program where I'll be teaching culture. And then I'm going to be partnering with restaurant 365 where they're going to teach us all things restaurant systems and we're, we're still looking for a marketing collaborator i have some ideas nothing that i'm i'm really willing to say out loud yet but we're going to have a coach for our marketing and then i'm also going to be focusing on human factors what's going on between your ears this brain of yours how do you get mastery of your brain uh it's a subject that i I'm really passionate about. I'm not going to say that I have mastered my brain by any means, but like I am very interested in the subject and I'm constantly working on myself and I want you to to come along this journey with me in figuring out this idea of, of, you know, mindset of choosing to be happy of developing habit, developing discipline, things like this. We're going to dive deep into that stuff. So this is going to be a 12 month long program. Every quarter, we're going to launch a new cohort and um, I'd love to have you guys be a part of that. If you're interested in this, think of it as a mastermind with me and all the people I'm going to if I'm opening a restaurant tomorrow. If you're interested, we're launching this in Q1 2024. Email me, eric at restaurantstoppable.com. Let me know you're interested. I will put you on a waiting list. I'm super psyched about that. And <clears throat> we have some cool things coming your way. 2024 is going to be freaking awesome. I can't wait. I just want to say thank you to Jerry Parisi for all of your hard work as our copywriter and editor, and you do so much more than that. And I couldn't be more psyched to have Callan Viola join us as our community manager. Uh, we are doing great things here at Restaurant Stoppable. I'm so grateful for my team, and I'm grateful for you, my listeners. And man, I'm going to shut up now. That's it for today. Until next time, peace. Peace.